everybody, and welcome to episode 176 of Allied Strategies. My name is Tristan. Joining me, as always, is my friend Benjamin. Good morning, evening, or afternoon. Right, but if it's in the middle of the night, stop listening to this yeah, podcast. Yeah, that just go sucks away. for you. I'm not, yeah. you're, you're, I mean, you, you can, can go, go on bed. with your life. It's the middle just, of the night. Yeah. You just don't get a... Yeah. Who's awake so at midnight or 1 a.m. of the three of us ever? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and also joining us is Sam. Hello. Go to bed if it's the middle of the night, though. <laughs> you know, it's too late. We're not that important. You can yeah, we'll, we'll be here in the morning. We'll be here in the morning. Um, and what we'll be discussing when, when you wake up to listen to this podcast is going to be Azorius week. Um, we're going to talk about Azorius in draft, mostly. And then we're going to cover it briefly in constructed as well. Uh, and there are actually a couple of different Azorius decks in constructed that uh, we will be discussing, too. So that's, uh, that's part of the plan. But first, Azori- Azorius termed a little loosely here, but yeah, yeah, a few of them, you know, whatever. We'll we'll get there when we get there. Um, but first, we have some exciting news slash controversy to discuss in the greater Magic world. Um, this is the GP London issue. So what's happened here is that um, they've announced that GP London is going to be a pre-release Grand Prix. Um, there's a bit of a weird tournament structure going on where there's multiple day one flights of which you can play multiple uh, of them. And uh, and then they, that'll all feed into one day two. And uh, the main thing, though, is that it is a pre-release event. So there are some concerns that that's going to steal uh, players who would be potentially playing pre-release events at local game stores on that weekend uh, to go play in this Grand Prix instead. What are your takes on uh, on this development, Sam? So it's really tough for me. Like, I feel sympathetic to the game stores that are potentially losing business to this, you know, and and they feel bad and that sucks. But for me personally, I am just so excited about the prospect of playing because not only is it going to be the Grand Prix that's a pre-release, the Pro Tour is also going to be a pre-release. And I am so excited for the prospect of playing a Pro Tour where most of the participants, you know, have just seen the cards or, or, you know, are getting sort of a fresh first impression of the cards. Like that just sounds so awesome to me that I, I don't want the, uh, the, the perfect to be the enemy of the good here in this case. And it sucks that they don't have a solution right now that doesn't involve these game stores losing out, but I'm so excited to play a pro tour like this that I, I'm, I want to experiment with it. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that moving this kind of pre-releasey thing to the big, uh, like, Pre-release is the most exciting time in Magic, and and bringing it to the kind of bigger and competitive stage, like, there's a quick drop-off in enthusiasm for each new set, and capturing people before they they lose interest in the new set uh, with competitive play, I think, is really an exciting thing to do uh, for everybody. So I think that if they can solve this this problem, and, like, first off, you know, if there's a a debate about how big of a problem it is, how many people who, like, play pre-releases and play Grand Prix actually overlap. which obviously we don't have the, the numbers on. We just have anecdotes from, from various people on various sides of the issue. But I think, that, yeah, some, some sort of, uh, you know, some, some olive branch being extended to the, particularly like the area, the game stores in the local area of the Grand Prix um, would be a really nice way to just make everybody feel good about this. Yeah, one idea I've seen floated is to have them have a pre-pre-release the week before because they're going to have pre-release kits shipped out by then anyway and all this stuff. And that sounds like a totally reasonable solution. I don't know all the logistics involved. I, I, I'm not an expert on that sort of thing. But if that solution is viable, then it sounds pretty good to me. Yeah, that would even probably get, like, I don't know, like professional players would maybe even just go a week early and play in the pre-pre-releases. Uh, I guess they probably wouldn't because you can just do it digitally um, on Arena pretty quick before the, yeah, like, before we... the pre-release even. But yeah, well, I, That I, depends I, on when the Arena release date is, right? Like... Isn't that usually pre-release weekend is also when it comes out on Arena? Right, but that's when the Pro Tour is. That's, that's true. Okay, is. yeah. So, they, yeah, they would, they would definitely... Um, I guess they... Well, I, I don't know how they would act. But, yeah, it could, it could certainly be better than uh, a regular pre-release for those stores, which would be cool. If that's something you... Like, I, I don't know. I'm not really convinced that you want, like, hundreds of Magic Pros, pros flying to us, like, Local a game small stores. sequence yeah. of shops in... In, in so, the south of England, London yeah. area, yeah, uh, this is a fair point. Yeah, so the, the, but I, I agree that like okay, minor logistics aside, like it, it's important. 
it's important for Wizards to support local game stores, but I think that uh, we can't lose sight of the bigger picture here, which is that this is like a really... I think it's important for them to be able to experiment in this space. Um, yeah. And I think yeah, I, it's, it, it'll be really cool if, if we have uh, competitive events, pre-release weekends. Like I've, I would, I've always been most interested in watching Magic pre-release weekend, and I, that's always the weekend it's hardest to do it because there's just no like, competitive Magic available. I agree with you both, like, 100%, basically. I mean, yeah, it sucks for these stores this time, but it's not like they're going to keep having the Pro Tour in London. Like, you know, the next Pro Tour is going to be somewhere else, and then I guess those local game stores will take a little bit of a hit, but, like, it's going to get amortized over all of them, so the the impact to each one should be pretty small, I think. And, you know... Yeah, like, in if, the long if this term, is, if, if this, this is, is an exciting, magic, then yeah, it's uh, an good exciting, for all the LGSs good as well. Yeah, exactly. So I, I personally think that the reaction has been a little overblown, but I also don't really have access to LGS business metrics, you know, like maybe they yeah. really need their releases to survive. My understanding which... is that quite a few of them are like hanging by a thread uh, at any given time. So they're very uh, sensitive to these sorts of uh, like short term uh, problems. But again, I don't have uh, a good understanding either. It's all it's all it's all speculative for me. Uh, anyways, that's our that's our thoughts though on GP London. I, I guess uh, cautiously optimistic about the direction of organized play in this particular instance. Obviously, there's just a huge like cloud of uncertainty in the organized play department right now, uh, just by the nature of how much they're changing. So, uh, but th- this step in particular looks like looks like one that's generally good to me, and I'm happy about that. So let's move on now to thanking our good friends of the podcast over at Patreon.com: Adam, Matt, Sean, Brett, Britton, Kyle. Caroline, Eric Winchester, Zach, Sam, and Duncan. Thanks for your continued support. Uh, and our Patreon question of the week this week, we don't have uh, an actual Patreon question of the week. That thread is still up on Patreon. If you are a, um, if you're a patron, go ahead and you know, ask us any questions. But uh, we've decided to not go back to our timeless classic of picking a random Yahoo Answers gaming question and uh, asking that because, uh, you know, the, the, as fun as that was, as fun as that was, uh, I think we got some... some reasonable feedback that that was not what people were listening to the show for was for us uh explaining what poker hand was best or whatever and uh and like a three of a kind versus straight situation so uh instead i've made up patreon question of the week which i'll be asking the two of you uh and that question is what's the biggest mistake that you've ever made in a magic tournament and this when i say biggest here like i don't mean like in terms of like the most equity you lost like what's the what's the thing you most remember as like the biggest mistake you've made uh in a magic tournament sam so the the one that sticks out to me is uh, it was Grand Prix Chicago, I want to say around 2012. I don't remember exactly. It was the one that Jacob Wilson won. Um, it was the second Grand Prix I'd ever flown to. So you know, it's it's kind of a big. It felt like kind of a big step to me to go from attending local Grand Prix and you know I'd drive to like Seattle or whatever for one, LA to one for one to flying to them. So this was the second one I've ever flown to. I started 11 and one. Um, before losing a round, so I was, I guess, 11 and two, which meant if I won, I would be 12 and two. Probably could draw into top eight. If I lost, I'd have my third loss, probably eliminated from making top eight of the tournament. Um, I was playing against Affinity with Birthing Pod, and I had a, uh, I had everything all all rolled up. I had a Viscerseer, a Malira, and a Kitchen Finks in play. My opponent had some untapped mana and some cards in hand. So I believed, like, oh, okay, you know, they could have disruption. I'm not going not gonna to sacrifice right now. Instead, what I chose to do was pot away my Kitchen Finks, and then when it persisted, I, if they, that was the time when they would have to act, because if it persisted with, without, uh, without losing its, its counter, I would, um, I would then go get a Murderous Redcap, and then I'd have two combo creatures, so I could sacrifice either one and win the game with either one. Um, and my backup plan, if they had a uh, a removal spell, was going to be to turn that Kitchen Finks into a Phyrexian Metamorph instead, copying my um, Harmonic Sliver, which would let me destroy two of their artifacts and still put me in a really good position because I would have an active pod. You know, they, they would have basically no board because I'd have blown all their stuff up, and that would all be great. So they did have the removal spell, um, as it turns out, and... I found out as I was searching my library that I had boarded out Harmonic Sliver. <laughs> or sorry, not Harmonic Sliver. I had boarded out Phyrexian Metamorph, which is uh, pretty disastrous. So 
what I should have done was just sacrifice the harmonic sliver that was already in play and go get the red cap. And then there's no point at which they could use a single removal spell to disrupt me. Um, I, they ended up, you know, I ended up getting the red cap, putting myself in a decent position where like they had to top deck to win and they did. And I didn't make top eight. Jacob did go on to win the event. So that was cool. I can't complain too much about that, but, uh, that, that mistake definitely haunted me for a while. Yeah, that's, uh, particularly those, those birthing pod situations. Uh, there's always like, there's always a way you could have won. Has been my experience with when I lost with that deck, and it always hurts me uh, when yep. I miss them. Uh, Benjamin, how about you? Do you have any of these moments that stick out in your mind? Yeah, so I mean, you know, I've I've played a lot of Magic. I've I've screwed up at Magic so many times. I've I've made big punts and little errors and strategic errors and sideboarding errors and like all these sorts of things. So it's sort of hard to pick one, but you I get guess... it. You've made a lot of errors. <laughs> <laughs> a comedy of errors, one might say. Um, so the one that sticks out to me the most as like, yeah, the one that is like, I guess, the most important to me that happened. Uh, it, it happened somewhat recently. So it happened at the last pro tour. Um, I was playing uh, the the big red deck. And this was like a constructed round, and I was actually playing against someone, uh, a Californian player, someone I know, uh, Richard. And I ended up losing a really, really close game against Drake's, where I felt like I got a little unlucky uh, to lose. But but most importantly, what happened was that I didn't play a land from my hand. I figured, you know, it was a pretty typical Magic player behavior, I'll bluff or whatever. Um, and then I drew Arch of Araska on my next turn, and after playing the Arch of Araska, I only had nine permanents in play, just nine lands, <laughs> so I had to pass, and then my opponent top-decked, um, like, either a Drake or a Maximized Velocity or whatever to kill me, and the very next card in my library was a Lethal Burn spell, so if I had just drawn my land, if I just played my land, drawn my Arch of Araska and activated it, I would have drawn a, a Burn spell and, and killed him, and so... This mistake was very is important to me because of sort of how it affected me. Like, I was really upset at myself. Um, like, I was very frustrated. Like, this exact situation had come up before in testing, and I had, like, done it, or, like, I had noted that this could come up before, and just still in a tournament, I still screwed it up. And it, it, it actually, like, upset me to the point where I was, I was, like, showing it, right? So I was acting in what I would consider... Um, a discourteous manner to to Richard um, when you know I was signing the slip or when when we were engaging in in post match behavior and it, it you know after I took like ten minutes or whatever to sort of cool off and reflect on my actions I realized that I I, I was not okay with like the way that I had acted after that match so actually like I, I tracked down Richard and like I apologized to him um, and he he didn't really seem to think it was a big deal but it's just those sorts of things are are not that's not like how I want to behave at magic tournaments and that's not what I want to be like. And so the fact that, that that had caused me to do that, like made me sort of more reflect, like reflect a little more about myself and how I like was treating mistakes in high pressure situations. Well, I'm, I'm glad you've, I'm glad you've grown from, uh, from it. And I think that it's, it's normal to like care about how you play and, uh, it's normal to get angry at yourself when you make big mistakes. So, uh, and it's it's good that you are working to not take that out on your opponents at all. And I think there are that that's a, a problem that a lot of us uh, struggle with. Yeah, I mean, it's not like I berated him or anything. It was just like I was, you know, I was I was curt and discourteous. I think, and it's just not not something that I wanted to do. Matt Nass and I actually have a, a, a an in joke about. Um not playing your land when you should we we call it the license mm-hmm. with the, the the theory that there's a bureau that would grant people a license to not just always play a land every turn and we always say that the number of people who would have that license is incredibly small maybe zero people like you no matter how good you think you are you always end up in this spot where you you, you didn't play your land and then you end up regretting it it just happens I've seen it happen to so many great players so often that I, just just play your lands. It's a little PSA. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and wh- and one of the times you saw it happen to a great player was when you saw it happen to me. I, I get it. Thank thank you, Sam. Thank you very much. Sorry, I meant great players and also men. 
All right, uh, let's move on now to our. I guess uh, let me. Um, hmm. Let me see if I have a, a biggest mistake that I've ever made in a magic tournament. I, I guess it's, since it's my question, it's kind of a little weird. But let, let me let me see if I have one. I, I hadn't I hadn't thought of one, but now it's kind of weird that I haven't said one. It is really hard to have a biggest mistake when just so much of hmm. all of your plays are mistakes. Yeah. The, okay. The, the biggest one I'll, I remember is um, I was playing in my my first pro tour. Um, some haters among you like Benjamin might, might quickly say your only pro tour. Um, it was the pro tour he did the best in, though. It is the, the pro tour I did the best in, yes. At one and four. <laughs> wow, you and Ben have that in common. You Both both your first pro tours were your best. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> um, and so I draft. this was Fate Reforged, pro tour Fate Reforged, and we sit down for our draft portion, and I draft this like pretty good Sultai deck. Like I'm pretty happy with it. Uh, and I have a Rakshasa Death Dealer in it. Rakshasa Death Dealer costs a um, a green and a black to play, uh, and is a, a pretty great card that does a lot of things. And so I just I have this opening hand uh, with no no Rakshasa Death Dealer in it, uh, and my my I can play any basic land I want on turn one. And I just played Island Past, and then I just I untap draw my second card, and it's Rakshasa Death Dealer. And I'm just looking at like forest and swamp in my hand, just looking at me, uh, and then I lost that game, and it was very close, and I felt very stupid. So that's the that's a, a huge mistake that I uh, wish I wish I'd spent more time thinking about what land to play on turn one. Um, all right, let's move on to our card of the week segment now. Sam, what is your card of the week? My card of the week this week is the Tabernacle at Pendril Vale. Um, it is an old card from Legends. It's a land, and it says creatures have at the beginning of their upkeep pay one or destroy this creature. So. Uh, I bring this card up because it, there was recently a rules change in Magic that says that cards like this that graft abilities onto other people's creatures, the triggers are the responsibility of the person who owns the card. So previously, if I played at the Tabernacle at Pendril Vale and my opponent untapped and drew their card, all their creatures were dead. They didn't get a chance to pay, even though I maybe I didn't even have to say anything. I can just put a you know because you can just put a land into play. You don't have to announce it every time. Um, and I, I didn't think that rule was, I didn't think that was a particularly good uh, state for the world to be in. So I, they, I'm glad that they've changed this rule. Um, people have pointed out that it now kind of creates an incentive where your opponent can draw their card first, can, you know, intentionally draw their card first and then claim they didn't realize about the tabernacle trigger. Um, and my feeling on that is that there are a lot of ways to cheat in games of magic. Most people don't want to do that because they want to follow the rules and people don't like cheating generally. So I'm not super opposed to the introduction of an additional way. If it generally leads to more fair gameplay, like more games where people get to do the thing that they intended to do and pay for their tabernacle triggers. So I'm a fan of that rules change. Yeah. Particularly. I, I believe... Okay, go ahead. I believe you actually have the rules change wrong. Oh, do I? Yeah, it, it's not... The rules change was about triggers that have a default action. It, it, I don't believe it changes the, the responsibility of the trigger, or, like, the, the owner of the trigger or whatever. Well, owner is a technical magic term, but, like, the, the change was to triggers with default actions. Now, like, there's no such thing as, like, forcing you to do a default action. It's just the, the, the person who controls it chooses whether or not to put it on the stack, the the change is that that trigger is not detrimental. It, it is no longer detrimental for that player. Like uh, triggers that become grafted onto your opponent's permanence are still their responsibility, but they're not detrimental. Okay. Yes, I, I see. So so like now like before so so in your example you know you would pass and all their creatures would die because the creatures dying was like the default choice uh, for that trigger. But that's no longer the case. There's no longer a default choice. Now you would just put the trigger on the stack, and then they have the, op the option. They can either pay or sacrifice their creatures, uh, you know, how it would normally work when the trigger resolves. Well, um, there you go. Yes, it sounds like I did misunderstand that. Yes. Either way, I'm, I'm generally pretty confident, or pretty comfortable um, giving, like, people... When you're talking about, like, giving people a potential to abuse rules, uh, when it's, like okay, your opponent has to play this specific card and then you have the opportunity to abuse the rules a little bit. I'm a lot more comfortable with that being part of the policy than something that favors, like, 
you based on a choice of a card that you chose to put in your deck, right? Because uh, you just can't go to a tournament and plan to, like, cheat against Tabernacle, because you, you can't just choose to play against Tabernacle, right? Cheat against what? Uh, against Tabernacle. Sorry, what card? The Tabernacle at Pendril Vale. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that, that one is hard to cheat against. Yes. Intent, or at least to show up intending to cheat against. Exactly, yeah. That's that's the, the, the difference for me, is the, is the ability to show up intending to cheat against it is, uh, is not there. All right. Um, Benjamin, what is your card of the week? My card of the week is Blood Mist Infiltrator. Blood Mist Infiltrator is an uncommon from Ravnica Allegiance. It's a 3-1 for 2 and a black. And it has, when it attacks, you may sacrifice another creature you control. If you do, it's unblockable this turn. And uh, this is a card that I've been you know, seeing some, some recent success with in Limited, which is unusual because in the last week, probably the, the number of drafts I've won can be counted on, you know, half a hand. Um, but, but the most... <laughs> Which my half? Most, the big half or the little half? Uh, you know, I'll leave that up to the, to the reader to, to guess. Um, but the... I actually, you know, have been... The, the, the drafts that I was actually doing well with recently have actually featured this card fairly prominently. Um, and to go along with it, like, a lot of copies of Imperious Oligarch. So you, you might say, Ben, well, you know, the reason you're winning these these drafts is probably because you have a bunch of Imperious Oligarchs in your deck, not because you have Blood Mist Infiltrator in your deck. But I would counter that by saying that, in, in my experience, a lot of the time, you will have, even if you have such high-quality two-drops as Imperious Oligarch, they will just get outclassed, like, a lot of the time. Like, they will just not be able to trade profitably with anything on board, and then even though you're getting, like, a good rate for a two-drop, it is, at the end of the day, still a two-drop, and you sort of, if you if you overload your deck with them, you're not going to be able to, you're not going to be capable of, um, of really going toe to toe with people in the, in a longer game of Magic, and so to to sort of counteract that, I've been playing like putting Blood Mist Infiltrator in my deck, which I originally thought was a very bad card, um, but actually just the ability to finish games and it just hits so hard for being unblockable if you can if you can feed it, um, you can really combine well with like the other sort of burn them out elements of Orzov, like Ill-Gotten Inheritance and Grasping Thrall and stuff like that. And so, yeah, I've actually been kind of impressed with this card recently. Yeah, I agree. I thought this card was nearly unplayable, but it's actually looked pretty good. Um, I've, I've been starting it a lot in Rakdos decks as well. That's, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't think it's just an Orzov thing. Yeah, I find that, particularly with cards like Ill-Gotten Inheritance, you you sort of really, really start to value these cards that can like push through a couple more points of damage. Um, so yeah, my card of the week is Gamekeeper. Gamekeeper is three and a green for an elf from Urza's Destiny, and it's an uncommon, uh, and it's a 2-2. And when Gamekeeper dies, you can exile it. If you do, reveal cards from the top of your library until you reveal a creature card, put that card onto the battlefield, and put all other cards revealed this way into your graveyard. So it's sort of you get a, you get a, an Oath of Druids trigger, uh, from when Gamekeeper dies, which is... Pretty cool. Uh, and the reason I've selected this card this week uh, is, well, I-, I wanted to say that I went to the Gatherer uh, page and clicked random card and just said the first thing that came to my mind. But uh, in fact, I did that and I actually randomed into a card that I'd already chosen as my card of the week. So uh, I had to p- click it again. So I clicked random, random card twice uh, to end up with Gamekeeper. But I'm pretty satisfied that I landed on this one because it does seem uh, like a pretty cool card. Like there's quite a lot going on with this one. Uh, and like the the death trigger here is actually pretty high power level. Uh, you can imagine a deck that plays like a few gamekeepers and a few very big creatures, and uh, get some good action going with that. Uh, or a deck that plays you know gamekeeper as a, a way to facilitate milling your whole deck into your graveyard. These are just some of the interesting ideas I've had around gamekeeper. Now you might say that this card has been in legacy for the past uh, fifteen years or whatever, and nobody's built a deck with it. So. Uh, that is a pretty strong piece of argument that it is not potentially viable for uh, those kind of real formats, but uh, certainly this is an interesting one to keep in mind, uh, particularly for like commander decks um, or perhaps cubes. Perhaps there's a, a cube archetype in a cube you're building that may benefit from cards like Gamekeeper. Uh, if you have like Oath of Druid style strategies that you're trying to make work in cube, this is something that uh, could very well slot into that archetype with the other cards that facilitate that strategy. So uh, there, yeah, there's uh, just... Just some of the, the many helpful tips you'll hear on Ally Strategies. 
I'm I'm pretty sure this card was played in either Legacy or Extended at some point. I, I I'm not quite old enough to pinpoint exactly when or why. It but seems like I, the kind of card you could like wish for and then only have boom maybe booms. or you can like play it with a bunch of cabal therapies. So like you know, you play it, you sacrifice it, you probably flip over another cabal therapy. If you hit another copy of Gamekeeper you can keep going or whatever. Ooh, yeah, that's kinda I don't cool. know. I just I, I just I distinctly remember that this card was in my very first cube. So and I built that cube basically out of cards that were played in standard and legacy while I was playing Magic at the time. Which it turned out that that the number of magic cards that existed was small enough for that to be a relatively coherent cube. So I'm I'm pretty sure that it was played in something. I just don't remember what. Well, there you go. There you have it. That's our um, that's our card of the week. On now to our main topic, and our main topic is Azorius, the Azorius Senate. Uh, and let us begin here with a brief philosophical interlude where we discuss <laughs> the intricacies of the Azorius um, from a from a color pie kind of understanding of the guild, because I think that this really does inform the, your, your ability to draft and play this, uh, this, this strategy and construct it. I had um, such a good detain joke queued up. <laughs> oh, I was so if, ready. If I tried to just go straight into drafting Azorius, you were just going to be like, hold it right there. <laughs> exactly. <Okay>. Um, <laughs> all, right, all right, Ben, what's your, um, what's, your, uh, what's your thesis here? Let's hear it. Well, you know, the Azorius, you know, they believe that law is absolute. You know, law is like the one true, uh, you know, thing in the universe that stops society from descending into chaos. Um, And they are the enforcers and arbiters and judges, you know, all these sorts of things um, of like the law on Ravnica. So, you know, the Azorius will come after you if you commit a crime. Um, They will... You know, they they run the prisons in which you will be detained and imprisoned. Um, and they, of course, make the laws, which you see on cards like Grand Arbiter, August, or maybe he's a judge, I'm not entirely sure. But, like, Azor's Elocutors is, you know, a, a card in which they're debating, like, oh, what should the laws be on Ravnica? Well, I think I should win the game. And people are like, well, what if you take damage? And like, okay, if I don't take damage, then I'll win the game. How about that? Um... You know, so that that's sort of what the Azorius are all about. They're all about being technically correct, and if something is the law, then it is good. And if something is not the law, then it is bad. I see. All right. Sam, do you have anything to add on the Azorius uh, front? No, I think I think Ben covered it pretty well. Yeah, my, my the only thing I'd like to add is that I think that, particularly with the, this recent set here of Ravnica Allegiance, we've really seen them kind of explore the, like, evil un like the the fascist side of azorius the like adherence to the law above all else and we've seen that with them um, yeah kind of moving away because in, in the first ravnica set and the second one to, to a lesser extent we saw them more as like a kind of a lawful good and now we're just seeing them as like uh, lawful neutral lawful evil i don't know if you I'm, read the first yeah. ravnica books but the azorius ended up being the bad guys in the we're, first we're gonna have to take you to the lore master school here mm-hmm. yeah all right. Well, just I'm, I'm not talking about the books. I'm talking about like the flavor exp- evoked by the cards. Uh, they I felt were like, very much not portrayed to be lawful good. Like forecast and... felt like you know forecast felt like a um, a nice friendly mechanic for friendly. Were even playing at that time. What? I would describe them as lawful evil. I, I would describe them as uh... all right. Fine. <laughs> anyway, do, you, just, do you agree with that characterization? Yeah, certainly they're lawful evil. As they've been presented, like I think that with a different guild leader, they could be lawful neutral, probably. But yeah, yeah. I just, I, I just would find... say in the second set they were in in Return to Ravnica. I think they were closer to lawful neutral. Yeah, I mean, I think Azor, like as we saw Azor on Ixalan, like he seemed. I mean, he was kind of crazy, but he seemed like pretty lawful neutral. Like he didn't, he wasn't super concerned with other people, but he thought that he was doing good by like bringing these systems of law to like various cultures and planes and stuff. He yeah. just didn't really, he was really vain about it. <laughs> I just, I just find that we've been seeing a particularly aggressive bent to the, the, like to the flavor of the cards of Azorius, like with the arrestor's zeal, like that kind of stuff. Um, so but do you think detain was not a, not an aggressive mechanic? Um, I guess detain was too. Forecast really wasn't though. Forecast felt like like the forecast made them feel like weather weather people. 
You know, oh. it's like a minority report kind of thing. Uh, is it though? I, whatever, whatever. I, I, I'll, I'll drop it. I'll drop it. Let's move on to drafting Azorius, which uh, is something that I may, I may have more, more informed opinions about. Uh, having actually drafted quite a bit of Azorius recently on Magic Arena, um, the one thing that I think is is very true about the Azorius deck is that Flyers is is one of the most uh, like coherent through lines to it. Uh, would you guys agree with that that characterization? Yeah, absolutely. I think there there are sort of two kinds of Azorius decks, and both of them are pretty flyer flyer focused and flyer heavy. Hmm. Do you, like a defensive and aggressive style. Yeah, I think I think that you can you can get pretty tempo-y with the you know the three mana bounce spell that draws a card and uh, four mana three two flyings and then Chillbringer and you know all of those create a pretty coherent aggressive package um and then you can also definitely be more controlling with like the three mana one four flyer and summary judgment and cards like that but either way you're probably finishing the game with some flyers uh benjamin how about you do you have any uh any thoughts on the the flyer like the how how much of yours how okay benjamin how much how many of your azorius decks would you describe as being like flyers flyer decks skies um so i usually interpret a flyer deck as like an aggressive-ish deck okay uh so i would say probably like 50 to 60 percent of them um i think that there is one other way one other main way that azorius decks win the game and that is in true azor's elocutor's style by just milling your opponent and the thing is that you don't these decks can win with mill cards that aren't like persistent petitioners right it's not dedicated mill cards you just put some thought collapses and some wall of lost thoughts in your deck, uh, and then you will just accidentally mill your opponent basically over the course of the game. Um, and I found that to be a, a somewhat effective way of of winning as well. Uh, you don't have to solely rely on flyers. Like there are decks that will that will just you know Dovin's Acuity decks and and uh, Clear the Mind decks in particular, the ones that just stall the game out as long as humanly possible until your opponent just eventually decks and dies. I see. Yeah, I've, I've also I've 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 had those sorts of slow control decks, but I, I haven't really won with the mill side so much as like my one four flyers get in like twenty times uh, in the final you know fifteen turns of the game or whatever. Yeah, or like the two five unblockable gets there. Yeah, yeah, like all of that can happen, and and the best thing about these like mill cards is that, like I said, you're not a dedicated mill deck, so it's like you can just win the game through damage with two five unblockable also. But sometimes your two five unblockable dies, you know, or or gets countered or whatever, and you know the game just goes on a really long time, and one fours aren't really going to cut cut it. They're not going to deal thirty four damage because your opponent has gained a bunch of life with Archway Angel or something like that. And in those games, I find like just having a wall of lost thoughts in your deck is really effective. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so let, let's start by talking about the kind of the 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 more tempoy though like flyer aggression strategy one where you're just going to try and like curve out with uh with flyers on each of the spots in the curve because there are good flyers really on every spot of the curve uh in blue and white um what sam what, one of the things that we've been talking about in the past couple weeks has been these spots on the curve where we are both like flooded with good things to do and where we are where where there's a you know a drought and uh the cards come at a high premium uh, at those spots on the curve are there any of those that you've noticed with the uh like an aggressive azorius deck um, Azorius has a little more of a cleared up curve, I think. They have sort of clear spots where there are cards that are really good uh, along their curve. So I would say less so than the, than the other decks that we've talked about. The one thing that I think is really important when it comes to evaluating curves in aggressive Azorius decks is uh, this is the deck that I think actually cares about two drops the most. I think most decks in this format are not that concerned with two drops because none of them are that good, honestly, but in this deck, um, or at least not concerned with aggressive two drops, but in this deck, having a two drop before you start playing your, uh, arrestors admonitions is really important. Like if you play the, like, I think the two mana three one is actually a decent playable in these decks because if you play that card before you start unsummoning your creatures and your opponent's creatures and drawing a card, you know, you can you can deal six to nine damage, which makes it way easier for your flyers to then close out the game later on. Hmm. 
So you're not even you're not even thinking about like um because I've I've been playing these decks and my my two drop slots have often not actually been all that aggressive. Like I've been playing um Fairy Duelist, Concordia Pegasus, uh, and then sometimes I've just been filling with like Glimmer Possibility or whatever in that in that spot and just doing that on my second turn. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that can work if I, I'm speaking specifically to the aggressive version. Like you really, yeah, okay. If you're if you're trying to beat <laughs> down, I do think that uh, Concordia Pegasus kind of sucks, and you should try to not play with that card, though. Yeah, I agree. Worth. I see. I see. I hate that card. Yeah, it, it depends, kind of, also like on on if you're playing cards like Windstorm Drake uh, that are just really looking to get flyer density in your deck, right? Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's good with Windstorm Drake, but how many turns does Windstorm Drake have to be in play before your opponent dies? Like, you know, the Azorius Colors, there's no shortage of flyers. You don't need Concordia Pegasus to boost your flyer count, usually. Hmm, fair enough, fair enough. Um, Basically, like, yeah, Concordia Pegasus, I don't know, it's fine, it's okay, I'm I'm fine to play one, but, like, it just doesn't attack for nearly enough damage, and it doesn't really block all that well, so. There's just a bunch of 3-2s in the format. Yes, yeah, <laughs> and there's a two one that uh that eats one threes the uh the white. Um, all right, so okay, so that's our two drop slot. One thing about the Azorius is that five drops. There are a couple of good ones. Um, like like with many of the guilds we've been discussing, actually, there there are just quite a few good five drops. Um, in Azorius, we're looking at cards like Chillbringer. Uh, there's the two five Vigilance. There's Windstorm Drake. Uh, these are all good five drops that you're going to be interested in, in picking up, so you, you probably should not be using picks uh, in this deck on the less powerful 5-drops either. Uh, do you think that's fair, fair to say? Yeah, I, I agree. There, this one is interesting because I think there's not as big diminishing returns on the 5-drops, but they are... Or at least the, they're, the, you're looking to play slightly longer games, I think, so the 5-drops the don't clog your hand quite as badly. Um, but... There are a lot of good ones, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so th- those are kind of the creature angles of the deck. Then I think one way to really differentiate different Azorius strategies in Limited is by looking at what sort of non-creature effects you're playing. Because Azorius has access to a bunch of different like flavors of, of non-creature effects. We were talking already about uh, Thought Collapse kind of moving you in this like mill win condition direction. Um, so th- those kind of counterspells are there. Uh, of course, there's also Quench, which is medium, uh, medium to uh, a card that I generally try not to uh, include in most of my Azorius decks. Uh, maybe the ones that are more aggressive and tempo-y, it would be more of a counterspell of choice. Um, and then there, okay, so then there's also Essence Capture, which is just uh, a card that I, I do like to include in Azorius, particularly because putting plus one, plus one counters on flyers uh, is a big game, and I enjoy doing that. Um, so then there's, there's those counterspells. There are pieces of removal. Of course, you're just going to play the pieces of removal in every flavor of Azorius um, because removal is very good, and most of the Azorius removal is, is quite compelling. Uh, and then there's sort of pseudo-removal. There's these bouncing and tapping effects, and there are quite a few of those in Azorius. There's multiple different ways to like bounce a creature for a card's worth of value, uh, and there are ways to like tap creatures down and do that kind of stuff. And then there's uh, you know card draw effects as well, right? There's uh, like four mana draw two, gain two if you play it in your main phase. Uh, five mana, draw three, scry three if you play it in your main phase, six mana, draw four, discard two. Um, all these sorts of cards, I think, are, are interesting ones, and usually each deck will contain some mixture of these. Uh, do you guys have any kind of preferences between these sorts of effects? Anything that you think is underrated, overrated? Uh, any considerations based on what other cards are going in your deck? Uh, I think it's weird to just mention precognitive perception because it's rare. That's true. Yeah, that's true. I, I was but, mostly trying to get the trying trying to talk about a four drop, a five drop, and a six drop, um, mm-hmm. for aesthetic reasons. But yeah, obviously precognitive perception is uh, extremely broken. So a very good one so, for yeah. So obviously, I, w- I would prefer removal above everything, and the Azorius removal is quite good. Like summary judgment and uh, law mages binding yeah. are both just premium removal spells. Um, and then after that, I think I generally prefer to be on the more aggressive side. So, you know, I like my bounce effects and my and my uh, I like my arrestors admonitions. Um, I guess code of conduct is that what the card is called? I, I don't know the the uncommon version of arrestors admonition. I think is not as good and is basically really close to being arrestors admonition. Yeah, that's like four mana, right? To bounce no, it's a creature. Three mana. Oh, it's three mana to, like, bounce... It's three mana, tap target creature, that creature... Sorry. 
Three mana, target creature gets minus four, minus zero until end of turn, draw a card. And if you played it in your main phase, that creature taps and it doesn't untap on, until its next Ah, uh, okay. Untaps, I, I was so. thinking of the four mana, bounce a creature, bounce one creature to their hand and one creature to the top of their deck. That card costs six mana. Okay. So that would be the one I was thinking of then. <laughs> okay. Okay. So yeah, I, I prefer those cards, I think. Um, and then after that, I prefer counter spells. And then after that, I prefer card draw. Um, although... Yeah, I, I don't. To be honest, I don't have a, a bunch of experience casting the card Prying Eyes, um, I, but I think Prying Eyes is actually pretty good. What one of the th- weird spots with uh, card draw in Azorius is that because of the lockets, it's a lot less. Uh, it, you the the blue decks have a lot less of a monopoly on it than they would in a lot of formats because like your Orzov deck can just play some Orzov lockets if you want a, a few slow divination style cards. Um, and the same goes for Azorius. Some Azorius decks are interested in playing with lockets, and then they just end up, you know, able to use to to, to play this long game without having to play cards like Prying Eyes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a fair point. Uh, um. Yes, I, I have. Fa- I have found that casting even even casting the like. I, I don't know, just getting a lot of card advantage from the, these sorts of card draw effects is something that I actually do like doing with, with my Zorius decks. Um, although, again, I, I haven't really played too many of the, like, aggressive tempo-y versions. Um, I've, I've been mostly playing more controlling decks that are looking to... Uh, I uh, the, the nice thing about playing the more controlling decks is that you get to play, like, I don't know, Sky Tethers and Slime Binds and stuff like that and have those be fully removal effects. Um, I mean, you you get to play Sky Tether in the aggressive Azorius deck too, because just all, all your aggressive creatures are flying. Yes, yeah, that 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 is that that is true. That is true. Sky Tether, um, cer- certainly in a, a much more compelling card in this deck than in say a, an Orzov deck, and then Slime Bind as well. The, the, I don't know. I, I like I like um, I like doing all that. I like I, I really like that part of the Azorius strategy, and I do think that the the two five Vigilance as well is just a remarkable way to close out a game. Uh, what about High Alert? Have you guys ever drafted any High Alert decks in uh, in this format? Oh, I drafted a High Alert once, and I put it in my deck, and then the only time I drew it, it would give my creatures minus two myself. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, I, was, I, I was actually going to mention high, both High Alert and um, Dovin's, Dovin's Ingenuity. Is that the name the, of it? Dovin's Acuity, Acuity. yeah. Yeah, I think those are both sort of decks unto themselves that you can draft uh the high alert one i would say doesn't really work unless you have more than one high alert but when you when it does come together i think it's actually pretty strong um i've definitely played with and against it you know people who have two and then start picking up just sort of the cards that look like they would be good with it usually i think uh senate griffin no no i'm sorry not senate griffin uh what's the one for flying called senate courier Senate Courier. I think that one is one of the better ones to employ with this card because it uh, it works so well at um, at buying you time and not being a very bad card by itself. Like if you play with a bunch of uh, persistent petitioners, you're probably going to lose games where you don't draw the uh, the high alert. High alert. Yeah. But if if your deck is full of you know. Uh, Senate Couriers and the 2-5 Unblockable, those are just good cards that, that can perform just fine by themselves. And so I think that's where you should strive to be in, in this kind of deck. Yeah, I, I think that's a, a great point. Yeah, Senate Courier I, feels like it's just pretty good in, in everything except maybe the most aggressive uh, versions of this deck. Yeah, I, I tend to think so. Um. All right, and then so then there's there's that high alert strategy. Um, what about the uh, the Dovin's Acuity decks? Is that is that something that you've gotten the chance to draw or to, to draft around? Because of course Dovin's Acuity is an uncommon, right? So it's it's not that hard to pick up uh, a couple of copies of that. Yeah, I actually had a, a really nice Dovin's Acuity deck at uh, at Grand Prix New Jersey that I thought was really good. Um, and that one, I think you tend to branch out from Azorius a little bit. You tend to to be willing to play other colors, but it works with the cards it looks like it would work with, I guess is what I'll say. You know, it it it, it is good with uh, instants that you don't mind playing at sorcery speed. And you, you when you draft that deck, that's exactly what you're trying to do. 
yeah, I found like um, depose deploy to be really good in this strategy. Just turn turn uh, turn three acuity, turn four deploy, uh, pick up your acuity. It's pretty exciting. Uh, or depose helps you kind of dig to it as well. Uh, yeah, and, I mean, I, buy time. I, there I think you're again you're naming a card that I think is just really good. Certainly, certainly true that it's it's good in all cases. But that's part of the thing as well. With, is like with both the high alert and the Dovin's acuity archetypes. Uh, I don't think you have to branch out to these cards that aren't generally good. Um, like with Dovin's Acuity, you can just play cards that have the word addendum on them and just be fine. Um, and you're, you don't you don't need to start playing cards that are like questionable if you don't have an Acuity in your deck. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I think I, I think yeah, I think that's a really good point. Is you should not don't go out of your way to try to make Dovin's Acuity happen. I guess. It's it's not going to happen. Well, I mean, it might happen, but you you just you you can have a deck that like is great with acuity and functional without it. So you shouldn't you shouldn't just like shoot yourself in the foot uh, in order to have a deck that is very great with with acuity because uh, you're you're not like yeah that that's not the point. The, your weak point isn't going to be how well you are how good your deck is with acuity. Your weak point is going to be like what happens when you don't draw acuity. Right. Absolutely. Uh, all right, Benjamin. Do you have any 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 final thoughts here on drafting Azorius, the Azorius Guild in uh, in Round Guild Legion's draft? Uh, no, I think I think we covered it pretty well. I think we talked about the distinct archetypes. Great. Let's move on then to talking about the Azorius strategy and constructed. And here we we're going to discuss a little bit. We're going to discuss some combinations of colors that include but are not limited to Azorius. So uh, be warned there. These are our strategies that we feel like feel Azorius-y, um, and, you know, maybe mostly Azorius, but it do include some other strategies. But first, let's discuss a pure Azorius deck, uh, and this is Azorius Aggro, so a blue-white aggressive strategy, which is interesting because, of course, there's both mono-white and mono-blue aggressive strategies in here, and, and we see Azorius Aggro as kind of a, a synthesis of the two. Um, have I, either of you gotten to play with Azorius Aggro in Sander? Um, no, but I would not ever describe the two as a synthesis of mono white and mono blue aggro. I mean, there's cards that are in both those decks in this deck, right? Uh, negate. Yeah. Neg- <laughs> well, okay. All right. Fine. Fine. Maybe it's not a like synthesis. The, like the Azorius aggro deck is basically a mono white deck that's splashing blue. Yeah, that, like, that's how I would do with mono blue aggro. Well. I, I actually have also seen mono blue decks splashing white. Yeah, uh, but I don't think that those are stock or necessarily particularly good. Um, but Certainly, like the typical, I've, I've, yeah. My my thoughts on mono blue splashing white is that there's often just a blue card you could be playing that does whatever the white splash is doing. Well, you just don't get to play Tempest Gin, which mm-hmm. I think is a huge cost. But yeah, so the the mono white splashing blue deck, like it's basically just you know white weenie, but they're splashing blue for a variety of cards ranging from negate to disdainful stroke. To spell pierce, you know, maybe you notice a pattern here. But they also get to play a deputy of dismissal, deputy of what is he a deputy of? Detention. Uh, detention? Deputy of detention. That's right. Detention. That's right. Yeah. Yes. 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 Of course, deputy of detention. Um, and that card is like very powerful. For example, in the mirror, um, or really against any creature matchup, uh, you get to exile. You know, wild growth walkers, hydroid crazies. Um, enemy Benelish Marshals, enemy Knight Tokens. It trades really well against History of Benalia. It's just a very, very good card. Um, and so that's sort of uh, what we see the evolution of this this White Weenie deck has become. Um, because it turns out when you splash a color, you just get access to a lot of powerful effects that you don't normally have. Yeah, the, the counter spells in particular seem like exactly what that deck wanted, because they're so concerned about sweepers and the the previous iteration of this deck, I would say, was the um, the Boros version that showed up a ton at the Pro Tour, and I think this is sort of the the natural evolution of that. We didn't have Hollowed Fountain then, or I think that's what we would have seen. They were playing the Boros decks were playing cards like um, oh what what was the name of it? The uh, like Frenzy. like un- Frenzy to to beat sweepers after they happened. Whereas this deck is now playing cards to try to stop the sweepers from ever happening. Right. Yeah. The 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 blue counter magic package. Um, right. Exactly. Absolutely. Um, okay. 
So yeah, I think that this deck is definitely like a powerful player in standard. I think we saw a lot of copies of it in the Star City Games tournament that happened recently. Um, I don't believe that it won. I believe the winner, the eventual winner, was Mono Blue. But I'm pretty sure that that there were a few copies of Azorius Aggro in the top eight, and it was well represented in the top thirty-two as well. Yeah, and this is also the kind of deck that I believe can prey on uh, on decks like Mono Blue because it's so fast to get onto the board. And that, that's really their number one mission, I would say. Yeah, counterspells don't help you much if your opponent already has six power in play. Right, exactly. Um, and yes, you, you, really, you really do improve your, like your sideboard when, you're, when you have this, uh, these islands. Or, well, I guess not islands, but the, <laughs> I guess they are islands, but <laughs> not very many basic ones. Um, for, yeah, instead of having to play like Unbreakable Formation or whatever uh, to counter these rats. Okay, uh, so that's Azorius Aggro. Um, do either of you project this being a, a, like a dominating force in, few, in upcoming tournaments? Or uh, like what, what tier would you place this deck in? Tier 1 for sure. Tier 1 for sure. Yeah, dominating doesn't sound exactly right to me. I don't think it's so good that you, you know, you're like insane to not play it. But this deck is definitely going to show up at the Pro Tour. People will play it, and it's going to be pretty good, I think. Okay. All right, let's move on to Esper Control. Esper Control, so uh, obviously an Azorius strategy with some black cards. Um, notable, notable inclusions there from black. Uh, well, I guess, what are, what are the notable inclusions you get by making your Azorius Control deck uh, have some swamps in it? Well, first off, why should we even play an Azorius Control deck? And the answer, of course, is Teferi. Teferi, yeah. <laughs> that card is very stupid and very, very good. But also um, the uh, the other the other question is why would you ever play a two color control deck um, with yeah. mana as good as it currently is? And the Very answer true. is you're probably crazy to do so. Very true. So when you play black, you get to add cards like thought erasure to your deck. Thought erasure is basically the only clean answer to hydroid crisis in in all of standard, pretty much. Um, and you also get access to cheaper. Uh, like more, more clearly anti anti aggro removal. So you get cards like Moment of Craving. You know, if you really wanted it, you could play Fungal Infection. Um, Cry the Carnate Cry of the Carnarium is very good against these mono white. You know, uh, Adanto's Vanguard Hunted Witness decks. Mm-hmm. Um, so black really helps out there. And then of course, uh, you can you can get really efficient. Um hand disruption in duress if you want it uh, i'm not sure like you know if you're playing a bunch of thought erasures i'm not sure how how overboard you want to do and play a bunch of duresses also but you could um and then you know cast out as or cast which one was the four man enchantment and which one is the two mana black cast out was the enchantment cast down is the uh, one in black destroyed okay. all legendary creature so my point is that cast out has rotated and been replaced now. Like now that that card is rotated, your blue white deck might be lacking in answers to cards like Planeswalkers. Uh, but you know, if you had black to your deck, you get to rely on good old Vraska's Contempt. I see. Yes, certainly, certainly Vraska's Contempt. Yeah, you get access to all those sorts of powerful removal options. Um, the Eldest Reborn, even something you you can play. I know that's a card you love, uh, Benjamin. It is a card I love. Mm-hmm. Although I usually love it because it is effective against control decks, not necessarily in them, but it is, you know, it is also good in your, uh, in in your like mid range in your control deck as long as you don't have too many five drops. I think nowadays people are just mostly playing Teferi's and Precognitive Perceptions, but uh, but you know, you could definitely play Veldus Reborn. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so that's that's what that's what you get from playing Asper Control. Uh, Sam, is is this something that you think is a a, a good strategy to be t- to be doing right now? And w- what are some of the big strengths and weaknesses you think about uh, with Esper I mean, Control? It, it certainly seems excellent to me. Um, I guess it seems like it has some weaknesses to people playing really effective tempo game plans. So, um, you know, mono blue, uh, and I think you're a little bit at the mercy of drawing your sweepers to some extent against decks like mono white. Um, but otherwise, yeah, I, th- I think you have a pretty coherent game plan uh, that is powerful, consistent, good for playing long games. Um, these control decks always do strike me as really it's really important to hit your early land drops and have your early interaction line up well. And when that doesn't happen, things can fall apart a little bit. 
Um, and I, th- I think that's true in this case as well. So, yeah, and Esper doesn't really have a way to, like, I don't know, accelerate their game plan, really, against aggressive strat. Like, you're, you're not playing cards like Growth Spiral that, that do a really cool job of that. Uh, in, yeah. Yeah. You, you don't get anything for free, I guess, is what I'll say, when you, when you play with Esper. Mm-hmm. You, have, you really do have to work for all of your wins. Um, and that's fine. That, that's, you know, that, that there's nothing wrong with that, but it is nice to have decks that have a nut draw, whereas the Esper nut draw is like, well, I play my turn two card and it interacts perfectly with what my opponent's doing. And then I play my turn three card, and it also interacts perfectly with what my opponent's doing. And when that all, you know, when that all comes together, it's great. But that doesn't always happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so for that reason, this is a pretend. I, I, I think it's it's difficult to justify playing this sort of strategy when you can play a strategy with uh, similar defensive options and much more powerful, like uh, a way to close out a game really quickly with uh, like Wilderness Reclamation and Nexus of Fate in particular. Um, I don't know if, if that if if you guys would agree with that assessment, but that's certainly my like hesitation to just play Teferi in this strategy instead of in that strategy. Um, I, I'm not so confident. I think this is the kind of deck where when you get it right for a weekend, when you have the the you know the good metagame calls and things, you know maybe your pairings break your way, you're gonna have a really really good tournament. So, I think I think there's there's definitely a mix, uh, you know, a mix of what's right. I would say. Mm-hmm. Uh, ben, how about you? What, what do you are you uh, interested in playing this deck potentially for future tournaments? Uh, I'm sort of notoriously anti control, anti yeah. this sort of strategy in uh in tournaments. I just like Sam said, it's just it's so hard to get everything to line up perfectly, and it's so hard to like perfectly predict the meta game and know that you know all of your answers are going to be good, like. You know, it's so hard to register for Thought Erasure and just be thinking to yourself, like, yeah, there's definitely going to be a bunch of decks that Thought Erasure is good against, and then you just play against White Weenie and, and Mono Red all day, and you're like, oh my god, why did I do this to myself? And I don't know, I, I just generally default to playing decks with more proactive game plans. Like, the Jes- the old Jeskai list that had Niv-Mizzet, like, I'd be way more likely to play a deck like that. I think that sort of deck is, like, way way better than than this one, which is really just, like... We're gonna play forty turn games. Yeah, and, this is and not one of those control decks. Are gonna get there. Like we, we've talked in recent in recent episodes, we've talked about how there's been this trend with control decks to like be favored in game ones and like against people's pre board con- configurations and uh, and like have a like a proactive like game plan themselves. And this is not one of those decks, right? This is this is kind of a traditional control. Like my answers need to line up well with the threats you're playing strategy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah it's, definitely. It's not stay alive until I cast Niv Mizzet. It's stay alive for forty turns until I Teferi Emblem. Right. <laughs> All right. Uh, the final deck here we have to talk about and constructed is also Esper. Uh, this is a more mid rangey deck, so we're playing a lot more like creature type things. Uh, what are the differences between this deck and the the control deck, and like what what's the spectrum that they exist on? Well, they both sometimes play Teferi, because Teferi is just a ridiculously powerful blue and white card. But the mid-range deck is a more proactive deck with, I would say, overall weaker... Maybe not weaker, but like the cards that it's playing need to synergize together properly. And um, like it's playing... the, the, The breakout card from the new set that it's playing is Hero of Precinct 1, which is a really powerful card, right? Like... Um, yeah, we're, we're seeing this card a, in kind of a bunch of different strategies. Uh, there, there's like a Mardu deck as well. Yeah, it's just like an on-rate 2-2 that rewards you for just playing spells, which is something you want to do anyway. So you don't even have to work that hard uh, to make it good. And, you know, it rewards you in a meaningful way where it gives you these 1-1 tokens that you can use to either play defensively or aggressively, depending on what sort of deck you're playing against. Um, and so that's all well and good, but you also see it, it's also just kind of slow and clunky. Like, it, it, it's playing, like, Thief of, Thief of Sanity, which is a powerful card, but doesn't line up very well in Game 1s, usually, when people just have a bunch of removal, and the Thief, like, it's a, it's a vanilla... Or, it's not vanilla, but you, you need to untap with it and attack with it in order for it to really be effective. Um, and then they also have, like, cards like Seraph of the Scales, which is another sort of slow card you need to untap with before it's good. So this deck, 
you know, it, it's got a lot of rares. It's got a lot of gold cards. Gold cards are generally quite powerful. But somehow I feel like it's often just sort of a pile of on-rate creatures and one-for-ones and doesn't really have a particularly coherent game plan. Like, it's not particularly fast. It's not particularly good at drawing cards. And it's not particularly good at killing your opponent's creatures. It's just sort of medium at all of those things. Mm-hmm. I guess the way I kind of think about this deck is it's like a post-board Esper Control deck, because that is one thing that I think we probably should have mentioned with Esper Control, is when the way that they tend to sideboard is a lot of uh, a lot of creatures, you know, they bring in Thief of Sanity, Basilica Bellhaunt, uh, cards like that, and I think, yeah, I tend to think of this deck as sort of a post-board version of that. I see. So you're, yeah, kind of a, a pre-boarded um, Esper control deck. Yeah, and and obviously, like as Ben Ben was correct to bring up um, to to bring up the uh, the the Hero of Precinct one. That's sort of the standout difference. But otherwise, it's sort of just a pile of the best rates in Esper creatures, and I, I think that is a, a pretty viable and. You know, it's been a pretty successful game plan so far. Something we we should definitely keep our eye on as the uh, as the format develops. Yeah, and it, and of course you get the advantage of getting to play with post board counter spells. You get a lot of potential interaction there, um, a lot of options in in that respect. So, yeah, you have a lot of cards that are really good against a lot of strategies. Like in most matchups, there's a card in your deck that like the, your opponent's really scared of. Right, and you can customize your list to hopefully have the appropriate, uh, you know, ratio of interaction to to non-interaction. I think that's that's one of the the strong selling points to me, at least. Hmm. Yeah, I, I think you're. Uh, I think you're correct. There, there's just a bunch of cards that are like near the cutting line for this deck that uh, you can think about playing in it. Yeah, definitely. All right. Um... Does anybody have any final words on Azorius? Just any Azorius-related topics? This is a, a sort of a speak now or forever hold your peace uh, well, moment I, for the, I, the the guild. I don't think that we like the Azorius will always have the final say. I see. Not really up to us. Uh, that's a good point, Benjamin. I had not considered that. Uh, Sam, do you have any not necessarily <laughs> final, but final from us words on Azorius? I'm afraid I don't. All right. Let's move on then to the final act of our, our, our show here, the end story. Sam, this one uh, is one that has recently developed uh, on Twitter from you, uh, and you now have the dubious honor of having to tell it on our show as well. Yeah, this, is, this one does not, uh, does not paint me in the best picture, I can tell you that. So uh, my girlfriend enjoys playing Tron. She's, you know, she's a, a Tron expert, I would say. She's won, won a... Uh, modern challenge with it and she just loves playing the deck she plays it almost every modern grand prix so i thought and but but one thing is she doesn't own actually own a physical copy of the deck so one thing that i thought would be cool would be for valentine's day to purchase her a physical copy of a tron deck thought that was you know a pretty nice gift or at least physical tron lands uh and at grand prix new jersey i wandered over to the dealer booth and found a uh, a pretty nice selection of tron lands i found uh some I guess they are Japanese uh, antiquities, or Jap- they must be Japanese chronicles. So they're black border. Yeah, they Japanese look really chronicles. Clean. Yeah, they're in really good condition. Um, and I, I figured I'll, I'll pick them up. So I bought, you know, what I thought was a whole bunch of them. Uh, I thought was play sets uh, of, of each one. Uh, and then as it turns out, the, the funny part is I gave them to her and she's like, oh, wow, this is great. She really liked it. And then uh, she was describing it to her friend Gabby. And <laughs> as she was describing which arts, because that's what Gabby asked, she went, wait a wait a second. That is actually not the right one. That's actually multiple, uh, multiple uh urza's power plants and zero urza's mines and neither of us had actually noticed this to to initially like she got them and thought they were just completely normal regular legit tron lands 
And uh, yeah, it turns out they were not. Uh, so I, I'm on the hook now for for four Japanese uh, mines to to give to Caroline. And yeah, that's an embarrassing story. And then I, last night I actually played against someone on Magic Online who mentioned it because I I tweeted about this. So that's that's my life now is just people laughing at my misfortune slash mistakes, and I can't say I don't deserve it. Also, just just to give the the listeners a, a little view into how I how I view Samuel, when he tweeted out that he had bought, or actually when Ca- when Caroline tweeted out that she had received eight Urza's power plants and four Urza's towers, <laughs> I thought that this was one hundred percent intentional. Same, Samuel. <laughs> I thought for sure that this was a funny joke that he was playing, uh, and that he had like the four mines in his back pocket or whatever. <laughs> Yeah, she actually asked me if if this was an intentional funny joke, and alas, it was not. It was just <laughs> just a stupid on my part. Uh, <laughs> it was really really funny though. Anyways, that's gonna be all for us this week. But we will unite again next week for more Allied Strategies. Okay. All right. All right. Gather a random. Good. Nope. I've done that one before. Okay. Oh, <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs>